All right. Good evening. This is going to be blog number three, just leaving the kindergarten where I teach English. Let me readjust that. Sorry if that's loud. Uh, so this is going to be uh, my third audio blog. Uh, the first one was on the importance of seeking the voice of Jesus. Uh, and some thoughts on where the voice of Jesus can be found. Um, not, not a comprehensive study by any stretch of the imagination. And then last week, uh, in preparation for a Jesus study, that I like to call it, that I'm having with some students, uh, I talked about uh, kind of the over... Uh, overarching or overarching, however you like to say that story, uh, of what God is doing in the earth, on the earth, in the universe. Uh, and based on the four purposes, eternal purposes of God, the eternal purposes of God, as introduced to me uh, in a book by Frank Viola and subsequent podcasts, uh, blogs, uh, and now his uh, Deeper Christian Life Network, uh, which I'm a member. This is one of Frank's main platforms or, or agendas, if I can say that in a positive way, to get the word out that God has a purpose and it is more than it includes, but it is more than salvation. Uh, and so last week I talked about the bridal paradigm, uh, which is one of the four eternal purposes of God. Again, as uh, I, I, I think there are more eternal purposes. I think there are more ways to look at the eternal purpose. These are, are probably less four separate eternal purposes than four perspectives um, from which we can see the one eternal purpose. I, I I think there is one eternal purpose of God, and this is four ways that we can look at it. And uh, whatever the eternal purpose turns out to be, I don't think we can comprehend it in this mortal body, uh, limited by uh, this mortal body and, and mortal brain. Uh, so last week I talked about the, the bridal paradigm, and that's the paradigm that talks about um, God is choosing and is preparing a bride for his son, Jesus. The second paradigm that I alluded to last week that I may talk about uh, a little bit um, more today uh, is temple, that uh one of the eternal purposes of God is to create a home, a dwelling place for himself, uh, a, a sanctuary in which to rest. Uh, and we see this all throughout um, the Bible. We see it uh, in the Garden of Eden, and then we see it in the tabernacle, later in the temple, uh, and and the second temple, uh, 
and then we see it uh, in the church, and that is the the we we are the dwelling place of God. The church dwells among us, and so that the people are a spiritual house of God. Uh, as Peter talks about, we are built together as bricks. Unfortunately, I think most of Christendom, most of uh, the way that churches have followed this paradigm is to actually build many temples, physical many temples, buildings, church buildings. Uh, I think church buildings became an extension of the temple. And, and you see this in traditions where uh, the building is considered a holy place. It's considered a place uh, that demands you to act a certain way when you are physically in it. Uh, and there are only certain things, uh, presumably holy things, that you can do there. Uh, and so I think the way that it has played out, whether this is a uh, an intellectual choice, uh, this is the de facto result, I think, that we have made many, many, many temples, uh, and they are extensions of the the the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and I think we would say we would call it the house of God. We would call the church the house of God, and church today, like it or not, is associated with the building. Uh, but I don't think that was the plan of God. I think I think the temple was the last physical house that the presence of God was to be contained in. And I don't mean contained as in all of him was contained in there, but that was a place that his presence uh, inhabited. But I think that the, the people of God, the people themselves were to be the, the house of God, the presence, the, the place where the presence could now reside. And, and, and that's what Peter was talking about, that we were built together. I, I think it's, it's limiting and it's a shame that we have now uh, restrained the presence of God to a building once again. I, I, think that's a, I think it's a shame and it's a mistake. And it doesn't mean that buildings are bad and buildings are just are. Buildings are a fact of life and almost almost every every group of disciples every church meets in a building of some kind. But uh, the presence of God was meant to be placed in our hearts uh, and we call that presence of God in our hearts the Holy Spirit. So, unfortunately, that's how that paradigm has played out, but I don't think that that is going to be the last word. I think, I think there is a re renewal going on now, a, a revival of the idea that, that the church is people. And, and we are redefining uh, or going back to more original ideas of church, and right now, uh, it, it's a big deal. You know, 
we, we call it the um, fresh expressions movement and there are lots of fresh expression of church uh, and I think it's it's important that we don't ever get to the right expression of church but rather open up to the idea that that they they I mean by and large can all be true there are churches today that yes meet in four or five hundred or more year old buildings and there are churches that meet in coffee shops uh, there are churches that meet in buildings that resemble a uh, more of a uh, an office building and there are churches that meet in bars and pubs there are churches that meet in parks uh, on college campuses um, and I think that's healthy I think I think uh, Paul Medeiros uh, sorry not Paul Carl Carl Medeiros probably said it best he said uh, and, and this is not a direct quote this is a paraphrase but he said that church is what happens when followers of Jesus meet and I like that I I really really like that uh, and then I've been uh, listening to a book by Mike Breen uh, on audiobooks on audible uh, and and he has a similar idea you know he said if you make disciples you always get church but if you make church you rarely get disciples uh, and I know that's a simplistic way of looking at it but I really think we can see uh, that he's right we can see the the evidence that what he said is true uh, we've been focusing on building a church and you can see that when when you talk to a church that exists and, and they want to plant a new church what is one of the first things they look at when they say okay we want to split we want to plant another church what do they do they they try to get a building piece of land they need a building Okay, once they get that, what do they do? They try to get a professional or a group of professionals to, to lead that church. Uh, and so they have criteria that goes beyond what the Bible teaches is needed for a church. Uh, and my, my personal view on on the house of God today, the church uh, is very close to both Mike Breen and Carl Medeiros, and that is when Christians come together, church happens. When, when I shouldn't say Christians, I should say when disciples of Jesus come together. And I think you could maybe throw in a little intentionality, you know, when they are purposely, uh, purposely meeting in the name of Jesus. Uh, you could add that, uh, but I think, I think disciples of Jesus, true disciples of Jesus, always meet in His name. Uh, I don't think they would ever uh, have any other purpose than to to glorify Him in everything they do. And so, when two disciples come upon each other, church happens. Uh, and I think if we will look at it that way, much more free. Uh, look at it much much more freely 
uh, giving liberty and grace for each of us uh, to figure out how church works out for us on a daily or weekly basis. Uh, I, I just think that the church would grow by leaps and bounds. Uh, I think we would be able to throw off many of the shackles and and uh, you know tear away that box that, that we've put uh, our Lord and His church in, uh, and we would see rapid growth. And, and I think that's happening in many places around the world. So, uh, yeah, I kind of went on a tangent there, but that was the second um purpose, uh, eternal purpose of God, or not, not in any order, but that was one of the ones that Frank Viola mentioned, uh, that the Lord wanted a, a dwelling place for himself. Okay, so that's two down, the bridal paradigm and uh, the house of God, the temple of the Lord. Uh, two more. The third eternal purpose is that God had a desire to be a father of many children. He wanted to have many, many children. Uh, and he takes joy from his children. He takes joy. Uh, we know that two, uh, well, uh, the, the probably one of the most prevalent metaphors that God uses for the church uh, is family. I say metaphor, it's not really a metaphor. I think it's, uh, I believe it's a literal family because God is our literal father. Um, maybe not in the same way we look at our, our own father, but he is our literal father. Regardless, we, have, we are born of him. Uh, and so God wanted to be a father of a family and have many children because he delights in children. He delights in us reflecting his glory back to him. Uh, and that's why in the family, and Jesus talks about this, he says, uh, don't let anyone call you teacher because you have just one teacher. And don't let anyone call you father because you have one father. Don't let anyone call you, uh, one of the translations says instructor because you have one instructor. Uh, and so we learn that we are supposed to just know each other by brother and sister, and that's enough. That's enough. Uh, we are, in the eyes of God, equal with each other. We're not equal to God. We never will be. Uh, not on our own merit. If, if we achieve some kind of equality with God, uh, when we uh, join the dance because he uh, has invited us. He, he, is, he is our invitation to join him. Uh, and I think, I think fathers and, and mothers do that for their children. They, they, they don't want to always be uh, authoritative over them, but they want to be able to enjoy their children as adults, you know, adult, adult to adult to have an adult relationship. Uh, and so, yeah, God wanted to uh, have a big family, a big family. And I think many of us uh, down deep would like to have that if it wasn't for all of the <laughs> details and, and things that we have to do. 
to maintain a big family. Uh, and Jesus, uh, we learn, is the firstborn of, of uh, from the grave. He is the firstborn. He's the first resurrected. And his new body that he received after being resurrected was his eternal, glorified, uh, perfected body. Uh, the, his corruptible body, which is the first body he was given, which was crucified, transformed as he came out of the grave into his incorruptible Corruptible has put on incorruptible. And so Jesus is the firstborn child from the grave. Jesus is, of course, the Son of God. And we will be daughters and sons of God as well, fully when, uh, fully and physically when we receive our new bodies. And I said physically because the Bible does allow for two realms, two, two realms, the physical and the spiritual, but I believe it points to the time in uh, several places throughout the Bible where the spiritual and the physical will become one perfectly physical world, uh, where the spiritual heaven and earth will become one. And I think that's what happened to Jesus. Uh, in his single body and because he was giving his, given his glorified body we receive hope that we will also one day receive our glorified body uh, when we are raised uh, on the last day uh, and so Jesus is our older brother he's, our, he's the firstborn from the grave but those who remain in Jesus, who abide in him until the last day, whom he is called, will be raised, and the family will then be complete. So Jesus wants a people unto himself, a family unto himself, a clan. And we, we see this all throughout the Bible as well. We see... Um, uh, Especially with Abraham, Abraham is the is the, of course, the father of many nations. Uh, he was the father uh, first of Ishmael, then of Isaac, and from those two guys we get all of the nations of the world. Ah, uh, no, sorry, that's not right. Uh, <laughs> from Noah's three sons, obviously we get all of the nations of the world, uh, but from Abraham. We get many of the nations of the world. Uh, namely, the people of Israel. Uh, Israel was the, the second name, uh, the name given to Jacob. He changed his name to Israel. Uh, and the people of Israel come from Jacob's 12 sons. And they make up today what we would call the Jewish nation or the nation of Israel and all people around the world who are of uh, Jewish blood uh, 
called them, yeah, the nation of Israel. Uh, and then from Ishmael, we get uh, most of the Islamic people. Uh, we get the uh, um, the people of Arabia, I believe. Uh, I'd have to check the exact ethnicities of who comes from uh, the descendants of Ishmael. Uh, but I think it's pretty much accepted that the the political problems between Israel and the Arabic, the, the Islamic and Arabic nations uh, is because they share the same father and there's some sibling rivalry, <laughs> to put it lightly. Uh, sibling rivalry between the two nations even today. Uh, and so that's the third paradigm. Uh, and another place we see it is in the New Testament. Uh, of course, we see it all the way through the Old Testament because basically the Old Testament is the story of the people of Israel and how uh, the Messiah was born from them. The Messiah, of course, being Jesus, who was born from the tribe of Judah uh, in the line of David, which was one of the promises given to David because of his willingness to follow God. Now Jesus, uh, again, he's a physical descendant of Abraham, and yet when he comes on the earth, he chooses 12 new people. He chooses 12 disciples. The number 12 is very significant because, uh, as I learned from uh, N.T. Wright, this, him choosing the 12 was saying that he is reconstituting the nation of Israel. He is starting over. He is a new, what's uh, the word I'm looking for, a, a new springboard, a new, a new beginning, a new creation he's creating with his disciples. His disciples, of course, go on to plant churches, rather make disciples that become churches. Whoops, caught myself there. Uh, and of course, today, all Christians everywhere are descendants of the apostles and of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. We are now the reconstituted family of God. We, we are the new people. He, Jesus is, is, uh, is in, a, in a sense, our Father, and that God is our Father, and they, Jesus and God are, of course, one uh, in many ways. So, yeah, uh, the people of Israel thought that because they were, they were physically sons of, of Abraham, that they were going to be the chosen people of God. And I think they could have been, had, had they been faithful. Had they been faithful, uh, of course, it could have happened that way. But because of their lack of faithfulness and their uh, refusal to rid the land of all impurities and, and to, to rid themselves of impurities and 
to conquer the land completely that they were given, uh, Jesus came and reconstituted reconstituted the people of Israel and we who today call Jesus our Lord are of course descendants in that family and we are in the line of David as well we're in the line of David we are we are his children and and God wants God wants a big family and so you know one of the things we are doing is helping helping more and more people join the family of God so that they can call him father as we do uh, and again we see this paradigm pretty much all through scripture but it, I think in those two main places the people of Israel of course and then the and then the disciples of Jesus the church in other words okay so it's three paradigms uh, we have the Bride of Christ, the Temple of God, the Family of God. And then the last paradigm is, is of course, the Body of Christ. Uh, very often, in the Epistles especially, uh, we are talked about as being actually the physical presence of God on earth. We, we are His body. We are His his limbs, his feet, and his legs, and his hands, uh, his body, his eyes, his mouth. Um, he, for his own purposes, because of his own desire, has chosen to work through his body. And so the church, as the body of Christ... I believe is not it's not a metaphor it's sort of a metaphor in that you know again it's one of it's one of uh, the purposes of God to have uh, for the church to be his body and so if it points to a single a single reality that we cannot comprehend yet then yeah I guess you you could call it a metaphor but in the sense that right now, uh, on the earth now, in the in the age that we are in, Jesus chooses to work through us. In that sense, it's it's not a metaphor. We are actually His hands and His feet. Uh, so, the body of Christ. Uh, Paul talks about it, right? Uh, body has many members. Uh, we hear, you know, don't let one hand know what the other hand is doing. Right? We have all of these uh, different places where the subject of, of the church as the body of Christ is taught. Um, now, interestingly, same traditions and groups of people who teach that the church is the body of Christ. I don't think anybody denies that, not, not sanely. They miss one part, I think. We are the body of Christ, but we are not the head. The head is Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. 
Now, your body, if it's healthy, does not move independently of the head. It only does what the head says. It only does what you will in your mind for your body to do. Uh, if you don't want it to uh, stand up, then it won't stand up. But if you desire to stand, your head, uh, of course your brain tells your body to stand, and it does. You know, your, your body is enslaved to your head. There, there is no uh, separation. The, 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 the body doesn't sit there and think about it. Right? So if the head says, stand up, your body stands up. And there's no, you know, your body does not have its own uh, will. It doesn't have its own, we say that sometimes, right? My, you know, my, I'm too, I have two left feet, you know, my, my body won't do what I tell it to. But by and large, for all the movements that count, the head is in charge of what the body does. Uh, except for mistakes, but that's not a thing of will. That's weakness. There's weakness in the body where sometimes because of the body's weakness, it can't do what we want it to, especially as age overtakes us. But we have, we have many, many people in the church today, and I use church in a universal way, many, many leaders in the church who have supplanted Jesus as the head of head of the church they rule their churches with an iron fist um, and they don't know what to do with certain certain other scriptures especially Jesus Jesus said specifically uh, after James and John had asked, if they could be uh, sit on the right and, and left hand of, of Jesus when he comes in his glory, uh, just after that, Jesus, you know, says, uh, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. Uh, so he says, are you able to drink of the cup that I have to drink of? And this is in Luke, I believe, in the first Maybe, I don't know, chapter 6, 7, 8, somewhere in there in Luke. Uh, Jesus says, can you drink of the, of the cup I have to drink from? And they say, yes, we can. And Jesus says, well, whether you, you can or not, basically he says, you're going to have to. And yet, it is not for me to say who sits at my right and my left, but only the Father. And then he goes into this talk, I remember now, he goes into this talk about leadership. And the kind of leadership that the reconstituted people of God are to have. And he says, you know the Gentiles lord it over their people, but it will not be with you. Whoever wants to be the first must be the last. Okay, so, so he says, they lord it over them. And you cannot do that. You are not to do that, he says to the apostles. You are not to lord it over them. So this, I just haven't heard anybody go into what this means. What does it mean, you know, that we can't lord it over the people? Because when I walk into churches, it sure looks like a lot of the, the leaders uh, are lord.
lording it over the people. They're making unilateral decisions. Uh, they are very heavy-handed in their demands uh, for the church. They are the sole source of instruction and revelation to the church. Most of the gifts that are supposed to be evenly distributed by the Holy Spirit to the members of the body of Christ are hoarded and exercised by one or two individuals in churches. Uh, it certainly looks like to me that we are lording over the church, lording it over the church. Uh, and I don't think it's supposed to be so. I think that we are supposed to be actively listening to the head. And this goes back to hearing the voice of Jesus, right? The, in my first, in the first blog, if, if you can go back to that, if you haven't listened to that, the importance of hearing the voice of Jesus and recognizing his voice and, and hearing his will for the church is important. It's very important uh, because he's the head of the church. Um, and so either he's the head or he's not. Either Jesus is the head or he's not. Uh, if he is the head of the church, well, then he's talking to us and he has things to say and he's guiding us and instructing us. Now, does does Paul in, in 1 Corinthians, in the latter chapters, does he talk about that only one person is going to be able to receive revelation? Only one person is going to be able to prophesy, if you will? No, he talks about, he talks about the... the exercising of gifts by by many people by everybody he talks about the you know uh, every member functioning that we are all meant to function we are all the body therefore we all have a function nobody in the church does not have a function and everybody in the church is equally uh the word. They are equally worthy of receiving instruction and should have an equal right to share that instruction that they receive with the church, with the body. Uh, not one man. Now, of course, leadership exists. Leadership exists, but servant leadership, true leadership that doesn't lord it over the people, but is a servant of all. We rarely, rarely see it. And it's the kind of leader that I believe maybe uh, once it takes over the church again, will usher, usher in the return of the king. Uh, uh, that and the unity of the body, the unity of body, unity of the body, uh, which only will happen, I believe, when true Jesus leadership is introduced into the church. Servant leadership, leadership that allows everybody to, to minister to each other, who listens to all the voices in the church, uh, who encourages other people to, to lead, again, in a, in a servant leader, leadership type of structure.
think I think Jesus will be ready, and I and my my proof text, if if there is such a thing, uh, can be found in Ephesians, uh, I believe the third, possibly the fourth chapter, where he says he talks about uni- the unity of the Bible, uh, sorry, the unity of the body, uh, the unity of the church is what makes the church grow up into the stature of Christ. And when the when the church grows up into the stature of Christ finally, then she will be ready for him uh, to come back. So those are the four eternal purposes of God. Uh, maybe next time I'll talk about a couple more ideas uh, that I have for other ways to look at what God is doing, uh, mainly gardening. <laughs> Uh, the garden, the idea of garden, is uh, also a theme that we'll find all throughout Scripture. Uh, so until next time, uh, God bless you, and uh, I pray that you'll give the things that I uh, have said thought, uh, and don't take my word for it. Uh, everything I've said uh, needs to be held up uh, next to Scripture, and uh, in prayer, and if it doesn't hold up, feel free to uh, drop it all together. Goodbye.